Well, let's pray together. Father, once again, we bow before you because we understand the reality of our deep need to have you attend to our time this morning so that we might understand the very things that we will hear. Move upon us by your Spirit and challenge us with these things for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen. I don't normally uh, get nervous when I'm preaching, but for whatever reason, I'm nervous today. As you notice in, our, in your bulletin, there's a, a little demarcation we are taking from our study of Romans, at least by way of the study of the book, even though it's not by way of the principles or truth that Paul is proclaiming there. And so if you have your Bibles, turn in them to Deuteronomy chapter 32. If you were to go into my office here at the church, you would notice on the back wall of, from my desk is a quote that says, Give me New England lest I die. I put it there when I arrived here some 12 years ago because it was a favorite quote of mine from a well-known preacher from New England whose name is Jonathan Edwards. Maybe you've heard of him. He was born on October 5th, 1703, and he died May 22nd, 1758, at the age of 54. He was a preacher in Northampton, Massachusetts from 1728 to 1750. And of course, we know during that time was the Great Awakening or one of the Great Awakenings within the American colonies. And on July 8th, 19, or 1741, Jonathan Edwards was asked to come down to Enfield, Connecticut and to speak at an event that was taking place there. And the text that he spoke from was Deuteronomy 32. And this morning, I, 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 I want to bring before us the words that he spoke there. Um, because I think they have relevance not only for us as a people, but also in light of what Paul has been teaching us in Romans chapter 10, specifically verses 9 and 10, in reference to salvation and the gospel. And of course, I want to say his words with not the 1741 English, but in our own English so that we can understand them as best we can. And I trust the Lord will use them for his glory and our good. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35 says this, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. Of course, right there in that verse, God's vengeance is being threatened against the wicked and the unbelieving Israelites. These words are said to the visible people of God having received a great benefit by His special grace to them. But even though God had performed many wonderful works for them as His people, the Israelites remained in a state of spiritual stupor, in a state of not listening to wise advice. You notice in verse 28, they are a nation lacking in counsel and there is no understanding in them. 
They were given all the tools of spiritual cultivation from heaven, yet the fruit of their lives was bitter and poisonous, just as verse 33 and 34 says. Their wine is the venom of serpents and the deadly poison of cobras. Is it not laid up in the store with me sealed up in my treasuries? And so when the verse says, in due time their foot will slip, it seems to imply the following truths related to the punishment and destruction that threatened the wicked Israelites. Truth number one is this. The Israelites were always threatened by destruction. In other words, if a person stands or walks on slippery surfaces, then a fall is always a pressing possibility. The predicament of the Israelites was very similar to that reality. The real possibility of quick destruction pictured through the sliding foot in verse 35 of the Israelites was the perpetual threat of their ruin. Psalm 73 in verse 18 gives the same message of the wicked. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Truth number two. The Israelites were always exposed to sudden unexpected destruction. In other words, the picture of the slipping foot teaches us of the imminence of their fall. In other words, the person walking on a slippery surface is liable to fall at any moment. I was reminded of that in February when I slipped on the ice myself. He cannot even see for one second into the future. He does not know whether he will stand or whether he will fall. So when he does finally fall, it happens suddenly. It happens without warning. Again, Psalm 73, verse 18 and 19. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Truth number three. The Israelites were liable to fall on their own. In other words, another implication from verse 35 from the imagery that the Israelites were liable to fall on their very own and without being cast down by someone else's hand. In other words, this is just like the person standing or walking on slippery ground who needs nothing but his own weight to pull him down. And then, of course, truth number four, the Israelites will only fall at God's appointed time. Israelites will only fall at God's appointed time. In other words, the only reason they had not yet fallen, and in fact had not yet fallen at the moment that Moses had written those very words, was because God's appointed time had not yet come. The text tells us that their foot will slide in due time or when the appointed time comes, and then they will be left to fall. They will be pulled down by their own weight. God 
no longer holding them up on these slippery surfaces. He will let them go, and immediately they will fall into destruction. A man cannot stand alone on slippery and declining ground right at the edge without falling. All alone, when he is let go, he immediately falls and is lost. And so, from this understanding of Deuteronomy 32 and 30, verse 35, I want to make the following doctrinal considerations for us. The main point that I want to make is this. There is nothing that keeps wicked people at any given moment out of hell except the mere pleasure of God. Now when I say the pleasure of God, I mean His sovereign pleasure and His arbitrary will. In other words, God is not being forced to hold wicked people out of hell by any obligation. He is not hindered by any kind of difficulty from dropping them into hell whenever He decides to do so. It is his mere pleasure alone that leads him to preserve the lives of wicked people at any given moment. In other words, he decides to hold them from the flames just because that is what he wants to do and for no other reason. And so because of that truth, we have to make these considerations. Consideration number one is this. God lacks no power to cast into hell. God lacks no power to cast into hell, meaning that at any given moment, God has full power to cast wicked people into hell. The hands of men fall in strength wherever and whenever God rises up in power. Even the strongest people have no power to resist Him. Neither can anyone because others or rescue others from His hands. No one can be rescued from the hands of God. And He is not only able to cast wicked people into hell, but He can most easily do it. Let me illustrate, there are times on earth when a ruling prince attempts to subdue some kind of rebel and he finds it to be extremely difficult. Maybe the rebel has found a place where he may hide himself. Perhaps he's made himself some kind of strong following by way of a group of people. But it is never this way for those who rebel against God. No, fortresses can be built that would provide defense from human power, but not His power. Though God's enemies join hands in vast multitudes, even though they combine their power together, they are easily broken into pieces. They are like large heaps of light chaff in the path of a tornado. They are like a huge pile of dry lying in the path of a furious fire. 
It's easy for us to stomp and crush a worm from crawling on the earth. It's easy for us to cut or singe a slender thread that holds up a hanging object. Similarly, it's easy for God to cast his enemies down into hell whenever it pleases him to do so. Who do we think we are to attempt to stand before him? Do we not realize that his rebuke causes the earth to tremble? And that giant boulders are thrown around as he moves? Consideration number two. Wicked people deserve to be cast into hell. The fact is that God is perfectly fair and he is a perfectly just being and therefore that does not stand in the way. His divine justice makes no objection against him using his power to destroy the wicked at any moment and it never steps up to protect them from punishment. On the contrary, God's perfect fairness and justice calls out loud for their infinite punishment. Justice calls out for their punishment. Why? Because the wicked are condemned by their sins. So when they are cast into hell, they are receiving exactly what they deserve. Indeed, God's justice says of the tree that produces grapes like Sodom in chapter 13 and verse 7, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And so the sword of divine justice is wielded over the heads of wicked sinners every moment. It's only the hand of arbitrary mercy and God's mere will that hold it back. Consideration, wicked people are already condemned to hell. Wicked people are already condemned to hell. In other words, not only do wicked people deserve hell, but they are already under the sentence of condemnation to hell. Not only do they rightly deserve to be thrown down there, but the sentence of God's law comes and stands against them. God's law is eternal. God's law is unchangeable. A rule of righteousness that God has fixed between Him and mankind. So, sinners are already bound over to hell. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 18, confirms this when it says, Whoever does not believe is condemned already. So hell is the proper place where every unconverted person belongs. It is the place designed for every person who is apart from Christ. In fact, hell is the unbeliever's place of origin. As John 8 verse 23 says, you are from below. Hell is the place 
of his final destination, assigned to him by God's justice, assigned to him by God's word, assigned to him by the sentence of God's unchangeable law. Consideration number four, God's anger level is the same now as it is in hell. God's anger level is the same now as it is in hell. In other words, wicked people are right now at this very moment the focus of God's anger and wrath. It is the same anger and wrath he expresses through the torments of hell. That is simply to say, just because they are not falling into hell this very second does not mean God has no anger against them. His power is fully over them and he is just as angry with them as he is with the multitude of miserable creatures currently being tormented in hell. Indeed, God is substantially angrier with a large number of people who now remain on the earth. Yes, without a doubt, God is angrier with some, even in this very congregation, than He is with people currently. This is true even if you feel at ease about your situation. God always remembers and God resents the wickedness of people. And so it is a mistake to imagine that God is forgetful or that He's ignorant about these things and that that is why He doesn't remove His hand of mercy and just cut off the wicked. God is not like people at all in this regard, even though the wicked imagine that he is just like us. On the contrary, God's wrath burns against them. Their damnation never sleeps. The pit is prepared. The fire is ready. The furnace is now hot and set to receive them. The flames are raging and glowing even now. The glittering sword is sharp and is wielded above them. The pit is open. Its mouth is wide beneath them. Consideration number five. The devil is eager to seize the wicked. The devil is eager to seize the wicked in addition to all of the painful realities that we've already heard in those first four. He intends to do this just as soon as God gives him permission. The devil has the souls of the wicked in his possession and under his dominion. They are his property. The scriptures represent the wicked as devil's goods. Luke chapter 11, verse 21. Demons are always watching them, keeping them on their right hand. They are like greedy lions eyeing their prey. The demons wait eagerly for the wicked. 
They expect to obtain their prey soon, but for a moment they are held back. However, if God should withdraw his restraining hand, they would pounce on the poor souls of the wicked. And it would take no more than an instant. The serpent of old, the devil himself's mouth is wide open for them. Hell opens its mouth wide, ready to receive them. If God permits, quickly swallowed up and they will be lost. Consideration number six. The wicked are condemned by the hellish principles reigning Within them. The wicked are condemned by the hellish principles reigning within them. That is simply to say that in the very souls of wicked men, hellish principles are ruling. These principles are capable even now of kindling the flames of hellfire into a blaze. This would happen were it not for God's restraints. In the very nature of carnal men, a foundation is laid for the torments of hell. These corrupt principles are reigning powerfully. They're reigning on the inside. They have full possession of them. These are the seeds of hell's fire, active and powerful, exceedingly violent. If God were not restraining them with his hand, they would quickly break out into a consuming flame. They are already damned in hell. There are souls who are already there experiencing this. The wicked who are still alive are in the exact same danger. The hellish enmity and corruption is close to exploding from within them, bursting out into flame. In the scriptures, the souls of wicked people are compared to the troubled sea. Isaiah 57 in verse 20. Presently, God, by His grace, by His mercy, is restraining their wickedness in the same way He restrains the raging winds of the troubled sea. He says to the sea, Thus far you shall come and no further. But if God removes His restraining power and, and, and the sea would quickly carry away everything in its path, In the same way, sin ruins the soul, makes it miserable. It's a destructive nature. If God leaves sin without restraint, nothing else would be needed to bring the soul into complete misery. The heart of man is corrupted excessively. The corruption is beyond measure in its fury. Wicked men live here. Their corruption is like a fire. It's pent up by God's restraints. But if God were to let it loose, it would ignite the whole course of nature. Just as the heart is now a sink of sin, it would immediately turn the soul into a fiery oven if it were not restrained. Indeed, it is a furnace of fire. Consideration number seven. Wicked people have no security at all. Wicked people have no security at all. Think about these things. 
There is not one second of security for the wicked. No wicked or no security comes to the wicked just because they can't see the exact way they will soon die. No security comes to the natural man just because he is currently healthy. No security can be enjoyed just because they are ignorant of various accidents that might befall them. Even though there is no visible danger in their current circumstances. None of these things provide evidence that the wicked are safe. In fact, in every era of history, the overwhelming experience of the world is that people are always on the brink of eternity. That their next step will be into another world. We cannot even imagine all of the unseen possible ways people might leave this world. Unconverted people walk over the pit of hell on a rotten floor and there are innumerable unseen places in this floor that are too weak to bear their weight. The arrows of death are flying unseen even at noon. Even people with the best vision can't detect them. Why? Because God has a great number of unsearchable methods to remove wicked men from the world and cast them into hell. And so, we have no reason to believe that He needs a miracle to make it happen. He can use all of the means of the ordinary course of His providence to destroy a wicked man at any moment. All the possible ways sinners might leave this world are in God's hands. He has universal and absolute power over them. The mere will of God is always the determining factor as to whether sinners will enter hell at any given moment. It does not matter what method or lack of method he chooses to employ. Consideration number eight, living cautiously cannot give the wicked security. Living cautiously cannot give a sinner security in the same way people in their natural state are cautious with their lives, but this does not bring them a moment of security. People try very hard to preserve their lives, or at least they hope other people will keep them safe. And against divine providence and universal experience, both of those testify against this mindset because the evidence is clear. The wisdom of people cannot provide them security from death. If that were so, If there was a difference between the wise and the unwise, then political men of this world and others would not be in hell. But we see no difference. The liability of early and unexpected death is the same for everybody. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 16, how the wise dies just like the fool. There is no security in trying to 
live cautiously. Consideration number nine. There are no plans that would succeed in allowing the sinner to escape hell. There are no plans that would succeed in allowing the sinner to escape hell. For the wicked people of this world work diligently and they contrive all kinds of ways to help them escape hell, but nothing they do can provide protection from hell, not even for a moment. This is true as long as they continue to reject Christ. As long as they reject Christ, they remain in a state of wickedness. And when most people in their natural state hear of hell, they flatter themselves that they will somehow escape it. The natural man depends upon himself to provide his own security. He considers what he has done, what he is currently doing, or what he intends to do, and then he flatters himself with these thoughts. He mentally plans how to avoid damnation. In his self-flattery, he just convinces himself that he, in his contrived plans, that that will work and will not fail. And yet, the wicked hear of the reality, even that only a few are saved. And they hear that most people who have ever lived have now died and gone to hell. But even with that, each wicked person still imagines that his plan for escaping hell is better than those people who have come before him. He doesn't intend to enter into that place of torment. He tells himself that he will take every care, that he will order his life aright. He will properly carry himself so that he will not fail. However, when the foolish children of men place their confidence in their own plans, they reveal their own miserable self-delusion. The wicked trust in nothing but a shadow. Without a doubt, the majority of people who have already lived under these same means of grace have now died and entered into hell. And it was not because they lacked the wisdom of those who are now alive or because their plan of escape was not laid out as well enough. So imagine for a moment if you could speak with those people. We might ask each of them about when they were alive and did they hear of hell. Did you ever expect to be subjects of the misery that you are now in in this place? And doubtless, not one individual would respond, no, I never intended to come here. I had things planned much differently in my mind. I thought I had a good plan of escape for myself. I intended to really take care of this matter but it came upon me unexpectedly. I wasn't looking for it at the time, and it came upon me quickly. It came like a thief. Death outwitted me. God's wrath was too quick for me. Oh, curse my foolishness. I was flattering and pleasing myself with empty dreams of what I would do in the hereafter. I was saying peace and safety. Then suddenly, destruction came upon me. 
consideration number 10. God never promised to keep any natural man from hell. God never promised to keep any natural man from hell. God has never promised to keep any man out of hell, not even for a moment. He has placed himself under no obligation to protect people in this way. Furthermore, the only promise he has made concerning eternal life is contained in the covenant of grace. It is contained in the promises that are given in Christ alone. He has made no other promise to grant eternal life, no other promise to deliver people from eternal death or preserve them from it. Only in Christ are the promises of God a yes and an amen. But the wicked certainly have no interest in the promise of the covenant of grace. Why? Because they are not the children of the covenant. They do not believe any of the promises. Plus, the wicked have no interest in the mediator of the covenant. Some have imagined and pretended that God's promises are effectual for a man in his natural state. If a man is truly earnest in seeking and knocking. But it is visibly clear that God is under no obligation to keep such a person from eternal destruction. Not even for a moment. Doesn't matter how religious the man is. Doesn't matter how many prayers he might make. Until he believes in Christ, God is not obligated in any way to protect him. So here's the situation. People in their natural state are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They deserve the fiery pit and are sentenced to it already. God is dreadfully provoked by these wicked people. His anger is just as great towards them as it is towards those who are already in hell, actually suffering the executions of his fierce wrath. These people have done nothing in the least to appease or abate God's anger. And God is not bound in the least to appease or to, to hold them up, not even for a moment. He's made no promise to do that. The devil awaits them. Hell is open for them. The flames are below them. The fire is pent up. It is desiring to swallow them up, and their hearts are also struggling to break out against them. Furthermore, they have no interest in any mediator. There is no means within them in their reach that they can provide for their own security. They have no refuge, nothing to hold to. The only thing preserving them this very second is the mere arbitrary will of an angry God. His forbearance towards the wicked is provided without covenant and without obligation. So, having heard those truths and made those considerations, let us take our time and apply these things to application in our own lives. What you have heard is true 
for each person who is outside of Christ. The lake of burning fire, a world of misery is spread out below you. There it is. It is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of God's wrath. Just there below you is hell's mouth wide open and you have nothing to stand upon. Nothing to grab that will hold you. Only air stands between you and hell. Again, it is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up and keeps you from falling. If you are unconverted, most likely you are not even aware of this. You can see that you have not entered hell, but perhaps you are blind to the reality that only God's hand is now preserving you from falling in. You are distracted from this fact. You are busy looking at other things instead. You see your own good bodily health. You see how well you care for your own life. You see the different methods you've used in order to secure your own preservation up to this point. But these things are nothing. God decided to withdraw his hand. None of these things would succeed in keeping you from falling. They would be no more help to you than thin air is for holding up a person who is suspended by it. Your wickedness, your sin makes you as heavy as lead. This heavy weight tends to press you downwards towards hell. And if God were to let go of you, your sinking descent would be swift and immediate. You would plunge into the bottomless gulf. In that pit, your heavy constitution, your care and prudence, your best contrived plans for security and all your righteousness would be worthless to you. None of these will be able to help you there. They will have no more influence to hold you up from hell than a spider's web could have to hold up a falling stone. If it were not for God's sovereign pleasure, the very ground beneath your feet would not hold you, not even for a moment. After all, you are a burden to it. The creation groans because of you. It is an unwilling subject. Creation itself is an unwilling subject to the bondage that comes upon it from your corruption. The sun does not shine on you in a willing way as though it owes you light so that you can serve sin and Satan. Likewise, the earth does not yield you increase in a willing way as though it were providing you a way to satisfy your lusts. Neither does the earth willingly provide you a stage to act out your wickedness. 
The air you breathe that maintains the flame of life in your vital organs doesn't willingly serve you in this way. It doesn't provide you with life so that you can merely spend your days in the service of God's enemies. The things God created are good, and they were made for man to use in the service of God. They do not willingly serve any other purpose. Rather, they groan when they are abused, when they are used for the purposes so contrary to the nature for which they were created. Indeed, the world would spew you out if it were not for the sovereign hand of God. He mercifully prevents the earth from doing this. He subdues the created world and keeps it from retaliating against you in in order to, to provide you with an incredible hope. But even still, apart from this hope, there hangs the black clouds of God's wrath directly over your head. The clouds are raging. There is a dreadful storm and loud thunder. And if not for God's restraining hand, His storm and wrath would immediately burst upon you. Or in the present time, God's sovereign pleasure holds back His rough wind. Otherwise, it would come like a fury. Your destruction would come like a whirlwind. You would be like chaff on a summer day threshing floor. God's wrath can be compared to mighty waters that are currently held back by the dam. The waters increase more and more. They rise higher and higher until the outlet for them is given. The longer they are stopped up, the more rapid and mighty the flow once it is released. That's true of your evil works that have not yet been judged. God's vengeance has not yet flooded upon you. But all the while, the level of your guilt is constantly increasing. Every day, you are treasuring up more and more and more wrath. The waters are ever rising higher and increasing their mighty movement, unwilling to be stopped, pressing to go forward. Merely the pleasure of God that holds these waters back. If God were simply to remove his hand, the fiery floods of the fierceness of the wrath of God would rush out with inconceivable fury. They would crash upon you with absolute power. It wouldn't matter even if you were ten thousand times stronger than any other person, more powerful than you currently are, it would make no difference. Even if you were 10,000 times stronger than the stoutest devil in hell, it would do nothing to withstand or endure the flood of God's wrath. Furthermore, God is angry. He's made no promise to deliver the sinner And he is not obligated in any way to prohibit the arrow of justice from flying into you. What does that mean? This means that all who are not born again and made new in Christ are in the hands of an angry God. 
If you never have been raised from your state of deadness in sin to a new state, if you have never experienced his light, his life, then yes, indeed, you are in the hands of an angry God. It doesn't matter whether you have reformed your life in all kinds of different ways. It doesn't matter if you have experienced religious emotions. It does not matter if you practice some form of religion with your family in private or in the house of God or you do both of those. It doesn't matter because none of these things have the ability to keep you out of the hell's flames. It is nothing else but the mere pleasure of God that keeps you from being swallowed up in everlasting destruction at this very moment. It doesn't matter if you are unconvinced about the truth of what you are hearing right now. You will be fully convinced in due time. The people who are now gone who were in similar circumstances as you are currently, they are now fully convinced of the truth. Destruction came upon them most suddenly. They didn't expect it. They were saying peace and safety. But now they understand that the things they were depending on to provide peace and safety were nothing but thin air and empty shadows. They have dreadfully provoke the God who holds you over the pit of hell. And he holds you much like a person might hold a spider or some other insect over a fire. God abhors you. His wrath towards you burns like a fire. He looks at you And he sees nothing about you that is worthy. Nothing except what is worthy to be thrown into fire. In fact, his eyes are so pure that he cannot even stand to look upon you at all. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his sight than the most hateful venomous snake is in ours. You have offended God infinitely more than any stubborn rebel ever offended his prince. Yet it is nothing but God's hand that holds you from the flaming fire. There is no reason why you did not fall into hell last night. Except that an angry God was holding you. This morning there was no other reason why you were permitted to wake up from sleep once more in this world. And there is no other reason that can be given why you haven't dropped into hell since you rose from bed just a little while ago, except that God's hand has been holding you. Likewise, there's no other reason that while you sit here right now and you are provoking God's pure eyes by the sinful way you attend this solemn worship. Indeed, no other reason at all can be given as to why you do not at this very second just think about the frightening danger you are in. 
God holds his hand over a great furnace. It is wide. It is a bottomless pit full of the fire of his wrath. And you, as a sinner, have provoked him. You have provoked his wrath. He is angry against you as he is with many who have already been damned to hell. You are hanging by a slender thread. The flames of divine wrath are flashing all around the thin thread, ready to singe it and burn it apart. And you act like you aren't interested in any mediator to help you. Thus you have nothing to grab that would save you. You have no way in your own power to keep you from the flames of his wrath and to keep them off of you. Nothing you have ever done or will ever do would be successful in convincing God to spare you for even a moment. In order to help us see the gravity of that situation, understand these truths. Truth number one is this, you must understand whose wrath you are facing. You are facing the wrath of the infinite God. If this was merely the wrath of men, you might then have no need to heed it. Even if it was the wrath of the most powerful of men, it still would not even compare to the wrath of God. The subjects of the kingdoms of this world especially those of absolute monarchs. They are powerful. The kings have dominion over their subjects and their possessions and even their lives. And some earthly kings can even dispose of their subjects by a mere word. Proverbs 20 verse 2 teaches us this. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. Poor subject is liable to suffer torments to the highest degree. The pain he might face might be that of the strongest of the human order, the strongest that they were capable of inflicting, but even the greatest earthly rulers at the highest point of their majesty, at the highest point of their strength, at the greatest point in which they could dispel their strength are like feeble worms compared to the king of heaven and earth. Powerful earthly kings may be able to inflict their most effective terrors, but truly are nothing compared to the Almighty Creator. They are capable of doing nothing. Their anger is very little. They are like grasshoppers before God. They are nothing. They are less than nothing. In both their ability to show love and their ability to demonstrate hate, are minuscule in comparison. God's wrath as the great king of kings is much more terrible than theirs, just as his majesty is greater than theirs. So remember the words of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Luke said in Luke 12, verse 4 and 5, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I warn you whom you to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Secondly, understand that you are exposed to the fierceness of God's wrath. You're exposed. We often read of God's fury in the Bible. For example, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 18. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversary. 
Isaiah 66, verse 15, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger in fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. There are all kinds of passages like this in the Bible. Revelation 19.15 gives us another example. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's an exceedingly terrible passage. If only it said the wrath of God, that alone would have enough dread in it. But it goes further. It says the fury of the wrath of God. Oh, the fury of God. The fierceness of Jehovah. How dreadful that must be. Who could even conceive of the fury of God? Who can think of words that might describe His wrath? But it goes even further in Revelation. It says the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. It seems to be that God desires to display in very great way His almighty power. How? By inflicting His fierce wrath upon sinners. It seems that God in His omnipotence is enraged. That is, it is proper for His omnipotence to take fierce action. This is what God desires in the same way with men. When men exert their own strength to display their own wrath. What will the end result be? What will become of the wicked who suffer under his wrath? Who can endure this punishment? See, the creature who becomes the subject of God's wrath will sink into a dreadful, inexpressible and inconceivable depth of misery. But, consider these words carefully. If you are present in this place, hearing these dreadful truths, and yet you remain in an unregenerate state, then God will execute the fierceness of His anger upon you. He will inflict His wrath upon you without any pity. God will observe how ineffably extreme is your situation. He will see that your torments are vastly greater than your strength is able to bear. He will see how your poor soul is crushed and how it sinks down into an infinite gloom. But He will have no compassion on you, nor will He hold back His wrathful executions. He will not lighten his hand of wrath, not even a little. There will be no moderation, no mercy. At that time, God will not prevent his rough wind from blowing, nor will he have any concern for your welfare. His concern will not be that you suffer too much, except that you not suffer beyond the requirements of strict justice. But no infliction will be withheld because it is beyond what you are capable. Consider the very serious words of God carefully in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 18. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. 
You see, the wrath of God is an awful, awful thing. But in spite of that reality, here in the present moment, God actually stands ready to pity you. Right here, right now. Today is a day of mercy. Right now, you can cry out for mercy and you can receive some encouragement that you might obtain it. Once this day of mercy is gone, however, even the most miserable cries of the soul will not will not gain his attention. They will be in vain. Your screams will be useless. You will be totally lost, cast away from God as far as your welfare is concerned. God will have no other use for you except that you suffer misery. This will be the only goal of your continued existence. You will be a vessel of wrath fit for destruction, good for nothing, but to be filled up full of His wrath. And so when you cry to God, He will be so far from showing you pity that the Bible says He will laugh and mock. Proverbs 1, verse 25 and 26. How awful are the words of our God in Isaiah 63, verse 3. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Three important things in those words. Contempt, hatred, and the fierceness of God's indignation. It's possible to think of any other words that convey those three things in a greater way and you're facing the wrath of God and you cry to him for pity rather than show you pity he will give you no regard no favor at all in fact quite the opposite will happen instead there will be no pity but God will tread you beneath his feet and yes he will be totally aware that you cannot bear the weight of his omnipotence walking on you but he will not be concerned with that in fact he will crush you beneath his feet without mercy he will crush you until your blood flies out and spring, uh, out to sprinkle and stain his garments. He will not only hate you, but his contempt for you will be at the highest level. There will be no place fit for you except under his feet where you will be flattened like mud in the streets. Well, understand thirdly then that God has no purpose for displaying his wrath. Or God has purposes for displaying His wrath. God has purposes for displaying His wrath. Think about God's purposes. The misery that God will inflict upon you from hell is designed to display His wrath. Designed to display the wrath of Jehovah. God has it in His heart to reveal both to the angels and to men how excellent is His love, but... He also desires to manifest His wrath in its highest degree. Sometimes earthly rulers, earthly kings want to demonstrate their wrath. And at times they'll inflict extreme punishment upon those who provoke them. You read about it in Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar was that kind of king. So prideful, 
in his empire, desiring to show his wrath in a great way when he became angry with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he kindles the fire of the furnace seven times hotter than it had ever been. In the same way, the great and powerful God of creation wants to show his wrath. He wants to magnify his mighty power and majesty through the extreme sufferings of his enemies. This is exactly what Romans 9.22 says. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Therefore, since that is what God has designed and determined to do, he will do it. In fact, he absolutely will do it. He will actually show how terrible his unrestrained wrath really is. God will reveal all of the fiery awfulness of his vengeance for all to watch. When the angry God rises up against sinners and the wicked are actually suffering the infinite weight and power of his indignation, God will call the whole universe to behold his majesty and mighty power. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 33, verse 12 through 14. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done, and you who are near. Acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling as seized, has seized the godless. This is going to happen to you if you remain in an unconverted state. The infinite might, majesty, horror of an omnipotent God will be magnified through the extremities of your indescribable sufferings. You will be in torment in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And while you are suffering, the glorious inhabitants of heaven will go out and look upon this awful spectacle. And they will behold the wrath and fierceness of the Almighty. And once they see it, they will fall down and adore His great power and His majesty. Isaiah 66, verse 23 and 24. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come and worship me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So understand, fourthly then, that God's wrath is everlasting. Its duration is never-ending. It would be dreadful enough if you had to suffer under the ferocity and wrath of the Almighty God only for a moment. But for the sinner, they must suffer the wrath of God for all eternity. There will be no end to this horrible misery. When you look forward to the future, you will see a long forever. There will be a boundless duration in front of you. And this reality will swallow up your thoughts and cause agony to your soul. Your despair will be absolute as you see no deliverance in sight. There will be no end to the 
alienation of your suffering. You will never again rest at all. You will know certainly that you will spend millions and millions of long ages wrestling and conflicting with God's mighty, merciless vengeance. And then, when you have finally finished so many ages of enduring His wrath, you will know that it was only a tiny point compared to what remains. Indeed, your punishment will be infinite. Can any person express in words how dreadful the state of a soul in this horrible circumstance is? All the possible ways we can talk about the reality only provides some faint representation of it. It's infinite, inexpressible, inconceivable. Who knows the power of God's anger? You might be very moral. You might be very strict in your religious pursuits. Oh, that we would think deeply about these things. That apart from Christ, we will endure eternal punishment whether we are young or old. We need to set our thoughts on these realities. There's good reason to think that there are people even here right now in this very congregation, even hearing this very sermon, who actually will be subjects of eternal misery. We have no way of knowing. We don't know who you are. We don't know where you're sitting. We don't know what your thoughts are in your mind. It might even be that right now you are at an ease within yourself and in your very soul. Perhaps you're listening to this and you are not even disturbed by it. Why? Because you're flattering yourself. You're believing that you're not one of those that are facing God's wrath. Maybe you're promising yourself that somehow you will escape. What if we knew that there was one person in this congregation. Just one. What if we knew that? One person who would be cast into hell, who would become the subject of this misery. How awful would we think about that? What if we knew who it was? It would be terrible for us to even look at them. We wouldn't even want to look in their direction. The rest of us would just lift up a lament and we would bitterly weep over them. But instead of one, how many people do you think will remember these very words when they are in hell? It would not be surprising if some of the people who are here right now in our service were in hell in a very short period of time. Some may even be there before the year is out. In fact, it would not be surprising if some people now sitting here in the seats in this meeting house, currently healthy, currently quiet, currently secure, were in hell before tomorrow morning. For those who live in full natural life, you're healthy. 
You'll be able to put off hell for the longest, potentially. But even you will be there quickly. Why? Because longer life does not mean your damnation is sleeping. It will come upon you swiftly. For most, it will most likely come very suddenly. In fact, there's no reason to wonder why you're not in hell already. No doubt, some people you have known are there already. You saw them once in your life. You saw them for a time, but now you don't see them anymore. Their severe eternal punishment has already begun. So keep in mind, they did not deserve hell any more than you do. And before they dropped into the fiery pit, they seemed to be just as alive as you are now. But in their cases, they are past all hope. They are crying in their extreme misery and complete despair. But you are in the land of the living. You are in the land of the living and in the house of God. You still have the opportunity to obtain salvation. What do you think of those poor hopeless souls who would give for just one day to have the opportunity you now have? Right now you have an extraordinary opportunity. You live in the day when Christ has thrown open the door of mercy. He is standing at the door. He is raising a loud voice and he is calling and he is crying to poor sinners to come to him. Be saved. This is a day. This is a day when when many are flocking to Christ. They're coming to him. From the east, from the west, from the north, from the south. They're coming from all the parts of the globe. Many of these were in the same condition that you are in, but they are now happy. Their hearts are filled with love for him who loved them. He has washed them from their sins with his own blood. They are rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. So it would be awful if you were left behind on a day like this. How terrible to see many people feasting while you are slipping and perishing. How terrible to see so many people rejoicing and singing because they have joy in their hearts while your heart mourns in sorrow. How can you rest one moment while you're in that condition? And so, to the elderly here, it is true that many of you have lived a long time in this world, but to this day, some are still not born again. If that is you, then you are lost. You are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You have done nothing since the day of your birth except store up wrath, which must be faced on the day of wrath. And so I plead with you. Your case is especially dangerous. 
Why? Because your guilt and hardness of heart are extremely great. Generally, people who have reached your age have already passed on. But you're still here in the land of the living, in this present time of God's mercy. You need to see this. You need to understand this. You need to think about the condition of your souls. Wake up thoroughly from your sleep. You cannot bear the fierce wrath of the infinite God. And to you younger people, younger men, younger women, listen carefully. Will you also neglect this precious season that you are living in? Others your age are flocking to Christ. They are renouncing the empty pursuits of youthful lusts. And you especially have an extraordinary opportunity right now. But if you neglect it, soon you will be like the people who wasted all their precious days of their youth in sin. And after a time of living in that condition, they have arrived at their place of torment, stage of life where their hearts are extremely hardened against the Lord. Be careful. Be careful, young people. You don't fall into that same danger, that same state of mind and same state of heart. Turn to Christ. And also to the children who are here in our midst. If you are unconverted Do you realize that you are going down to hell? Do you realize that you will bear the dreadful wrath of God? He is right now angry with you every day. He is angry with you every night. Are you going to remain content being a child of the devil when so many other children are coming to Christ? Those who come to him become holy, happy children of the King of Kings. And so finally, let everybody who is outside the grace of Christ, who is hanging over the pit of hell, listen as God calls through His Word and providence. doesn't matter doesn't matter whether you're old, whether you're young, whether you're middle-aged or little children. Today is the day of salvation. This now is the acceptable year of the Lord. If you're listening to his voice, heed his call. For others of us, this day will doubtless be just a remarkable, extremely negative passage that we're hearing. And for you, you must face the vengeance of God. Remember this. At times like this, when people neglect their souls, their hearts grow hard and their guilt increases rapidly. There has never been such a great danger of people simply giving in to the hardness of their hearts and to the blindness of their own minds. So if you're in a blind condition, 
you will eternally curse this day. Indeed, you will curse the very day you were born. When you're in hell, you will think how terrible it is that you witnessed such a remarkable season when God was lovingly pouring out his spirit, but you did not benefit from his mercy or receive his grace. You will wish that you had died early and entered hell before you had a chance to see it. Therefore, let each of us who are outside of Christ wake up right now. Flee from the coming wrath. It is certain that the wrath of the Almighty God is now hanging over part of this congregation. So run to Christ, fly out of Sodom, escape for your life, do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Let's pray. Merciful Heavenly Father, I know this morning these were not my words. These were not even words penned by me. But they certainly were words sovereignly given through the heart of your servant, Jonathan Edwards. But Father, let these words not be a history lesson to us. Let these words be the truth that was spoken concerning your dreadful wrath and the condition of those who do not know Christ. Even in our study of Romans, Paul has been pleading, pleading for the souls of his Jewish brothers and sisters. And we, by implication, have been pleading for the souls of those that we know, those here even in our congregation who do not know Christ. And so, through the words of Jonathan Edwards that began what was then a great awakening in the hearts of men, may those here who do not know you contemplate what they have heard, the dreadful nature of it all, so that they would run to you, beg for mercy. And in that sea, the outpouring of your grace through Christ. May that be the end goal of our time here in this moment, throughout this day, through our time of fellowship, through the rest of our week. May your name be honored and glorified in it all, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.